Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. So good to be with you. As Sarah said, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors and leaders at a church called Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. It is a a deep joy, and I mean this with all sincerity, to get to be with you. I have so much uh, affection and respect for your leaders. Um, I don't know if I should start this way. I didn't run this by the team. Uh, Whenever church leaders and pastors get together offline, like without any members around, uh, it tends to be similar to when parents get together without their kids. Uh, You might call it griping. I call it emotional and verbal processing. But whenever I get to talk to your leaders, and and you need to know this, they speak about you with nothing but affection and joy and encouragement about what the Holy Spirit is doing in your midst, in and among you as a people. And so either you are awesome or they are all in denial. Uh, I'm going to choose the former, okay? I'm just going to believe that you are, in fact, awesome and the Spirit is doing something in your midst. It's so good to be with you. Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, that passage that was just read for us. 1 Peter chapter 5. I know we just prayed, but if you would join me in something we do in Charlotte before we get into the text and the teaching together, let's just take a moment to be silent before the Lord. If you need to close your eyes, if you need to open your hands, whatever you need to do to just pause for a moment, because we've all lived a lot of life over the last few days. Let's just be still. Come Holy Spirit. Speak to your people. Amen. A couple of years ago, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence starred in a Netflix movie called Don't Look Up. At the beginning of the movie, Lawrence's character named Kate, an astronomy PhD student at Michigan State, discovers in her research a comet that is set to collide with and destroy the Earth in about six months. And that kicks off the main point of the movie where Kate and her professor Randall, played by DiCaprio with those wonderful bangs that she has, travel around the world trying to convince whoever will listen that the world is going to be destroyed unless they take imminent steps to stop this danger. But much to their frustration and our comedic joy, no one will listen. The White House makes fun of them, they go on TV shows, and the hosts make jokes at their expense. It's one awkward scenario after another. No one will take them seriously. Here they are shouting into the world, you are in very real and imminent danger, and everyone responds at best with general apathy, and at worst with laughs and shoulder shrugs and jokes at their expense. They just cannot believe in what they cannot see. Now, for a whole variety of reasons, we do not, I do not recommend the movie. 
Do not watch this. Do not go home and be like, the preacher mentioned it. Let's see what it's about. Do not watch the movie. But I wanted to start there because I think it's a pretty good picture of how it can feel to preach in 2024 about the devil, and about spiritual warfare, and about knowing how to resist what the Bible calls, quote, the spiritual forces of evil. I'm well aware of the awkward shoes that I am in right now being a guest preacher from North Carolina saying, let's talk about Satan. I think a big part of why it feels that way is because living with an awareness of the spiritual world and spiritual realities, good or evil, is seemingly an impossible reality in our modern world. For the vast majority of human history, up until really the beginning of the 18th century, the prevailing belief, whether or not you were a follower of Jesus, was that a spiritual realm existed and that spiritual forces of good and evil had an impact on our lives. And that has basically completely flipped to the opposite over the last 300 or so years for a whole variety of reasons. The rise of secularism as the predominant belief system in the Western world, meaning the cultures we inhabit, even in Bible Belt cities like Knoxville and Charlotte, the predominant spiritual belief is not religious, but non-religious. The rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Or the elevation of the scientific method. That we can study and observe the world, making any natural phenomenon studyable and explainable. So 10 inches of snow in East Tennessee in January is not a result of a deity being angry with us or happy with us, depending on your perspective. Rather, we know it's just precipitation in the form of ice crystals that form when temperatures and clouds reach below the freezing point of water and they fall to earth when they get too heavy. Or the invention of new technology, bringing with it life hacks and the ability to manage whatever comes our way. So illness is no longer an unexplainable spiritual phenomenon by which we need to seek out divine healing. Rather, we can just go to the doctor, get some medicine and a five-step treatment plan. So the default for us in our society, it's like secondhand smoke, it's just the air we breathe, is not belief in the transcendent or the supernatural or the spiritual, but rather the default is what philosopher Charles Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, that our lives are made up of and only made up of what is right in front of us. We can experience with our senses what we can see and taste and touch and feel. Author Mike Cosper picks up on this idea when he writes, I am programmed to expect that the world is what I can see, touch, and measure. And any thought or idea that runs against that expectation is met with resistance. I don't think I'm alone. I believe that most people experience something similar, a subtle but strong resistance to faith and a skepticism toward anything that veers toward the supernatural. Everything in the world around you is going to position you to a default setting of skepticism toward anything transcendent or supernatural or spiritual, including the devil. And here's what's so clear about this is that this is true whether or not you theologically or theoretically believe the devil exists or not. So we came straight from uh, the Asheville area that we were there Friday and Saturday with a group of about 20 folks from our church uh, spending the weekend together thinking about spiritual formation and discipleship. And it really is a dream weekend for me. It's like 24 hours teaching on discipleship and then I get to talk about the devil. It's like pastor dream. 
But we had that day on Friday morning as we were packing the van and getting ready to leave where my wife Lindsay and I just couldn't stop griping at each other. Like, you ever had one of these experiences where you're like, why are we fighting? We're like, it's like we just feel the need to, to pick at each other and just say un- unkind things. And we get in the van and we're driving here and we're trying to wrestle with like, why is there something in us that just wants to fight right now? And I said, out of my mouth, I said, maybe it's because we're heading into a weekend full of ministry that the Holy Spirit wants to use. Maybe, just maybe, we have an enemy that's trying to get in the way of that. And here I was, less than 48 hours away from preaching about the devil from the scriptures, and I didn't even know if I fully believed what I said. Do I actually believe that? There was a, a sense of cynicism and skepticism in my heart. Do I actually believe what I just said about the very real attacks of the enemy? And so even if theologically we think it's true and we would affirm, yes, the devil exists, it's a whole nother issue to not feel crazy bringing up the devil as a part of your spiritual life with God. And so we've got our work cut out for us, and this matters. Why does it matter? Why is it a big deal to have a view of the world that does not functionally account for the devil? I think for a few reasons. First, to have a belief system that does not account for the devil is to have a belief system very different from Jesus. Jesus talked about the devil a lot. Matthew chapter 6, he teaches us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Matthew chapter 13, he calls him the enemy. Luke 22, he tells Peter, the devil wanted or demanded to have you, which is very terrifying. John chapter 12, he calls him the ruler of this world. John chapter 8, as we'll see in a minute, he calls him a liar and a murderer. According to Jesus, the one that we follow with our lives, the devil is very real and a very real threat. But second reason it matters is that you cannot resist an enemy that you forgot about or don't think exists. Let me say it this way, you don't have to believe in the devil for him to attack you. And Peter, as we'll examine in our passage today, is very clear, the devil is seeking to devour and destroy the people of God. And we, those people under attack, are called to resist him. So hopefully you're there by now after that very long intro. First Peter chapter five. What I want to do is I want to work through this passage together, and I want to answer four questions. We're just going to go through them one at a time. Here's the four questions. Number one, who is the enemy? Number two, how does the enemy work? Number three, how are we vulnerable to his attacks? And number four, how do we resist him? Who is the enemy? How does the enemy work? How are we vulnerable to his attacks? And how do we resist him? Let me read for us again, 1 Peter 5, verse 6 through 8. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Question number one, who is the enemy? Peter in this text calls him your adversary, the devil. Now this might surprise you, but devil is not a name, it's actually a title. It's one of two titles given in the scriptures to the enemy of God. In the scriptures, the devil has two titles. The first is ha diablos, which translated as the devil. And it very simply means the slanderer or the liar. The one who lives to lie and spread false information about God and about humans and about reality. Second title he's given in the scriptures is Hasatan, or the Satan, the adversary, the opponent, the accuser, or as one scholar put it, the hostile 
one. The enemy of God and his people is just that. His work is in the titles. He's a slanderer, a liar, an opponent, an accuser, a hostile one. He is anti-everything good, anti-God, anti-truth and reality, anti-image bearers and anti-creation, hell and evil personified in a being who has existed in opposition to God and his people from the beginning of creation. Question number two, how does the enemy work? Look back with me at verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I don't want to overextend Peter's metaphor of a lion here, but I do think there's a picture he's trying to paint for us of how the devil works. It's not nearly as overt as some of us might think. Your car breaking down, you getting the flu, those are not most likely the devil out to get you and to keep you from walking in a flourishing life with God. Peter says he's a prowling lion, a hunting lion, meaning he's hiding in the bushes. He's watching his prey. He's waiting In other words, he is much more sneaky and much more subtle than we might think. But let's get this more on the ground. What does this mean he's doing as he's seeking to devour the people of God? Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, what are the schemes of the devil? What is the game plan of our enemy? Here's how Jesus talks about it. Look with me on the screen at John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, speaking to the Pharisees. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Notice, for he is a liar and the father of lies. How does the devil work? Very simply, lies. Deception. Unreality. He is a liar who exists to deceive the people of God, leading to their destruction. So he's a liar and a murderer working through deceptive ideas that are contrary to the reality and flourishing truth of God to lead people to death, to destruction. Here's how Pastor John Mark Comer puts it. If I'm going to speak in this series, I got to quote him, I know. Lies that come in the form of deceptive ideas are the devil's primary method of enslaving human beings and entire human societies in a vicious cycle of ruin that leads us further and further east of Eden. One way to think about temptation is to see all temptation is the appeal to believe a lie, to believe an illusion about reality. Which then makes us ask, okay, if the devil is a liar, how does he lie? What are his deceiving tactics? Well, the Bible tells us, let me just give you a few. Genesis chapter 3 shows us that the devil lies about the trustworthiness of God. Remember that story? He shows up in the garden. What's his first words to Adam and Eve? Did God actually say? He lies and deceives us to get us to question God's goodness and kindness. So that part of you within your soul that would say something like, I know God is good, but that is a scheme of your enemy. Matthew chapter 4, the temptation in the desert for Jesus where he shows up and he presses on him to try to get him to go along with what the devil wants. He lies about the emptiness of sin. He lies and he says that what we know is wrong for us, he tries to get us convinced it's actually what we should think is best, to chase after life apart from God. So when you find yourself thinking, I know this is not good for me, but... Or I know it left me empty last time, but that is a scheme of your enemy. Or in the book of Jude, he's the great disunifier of the church. 
if the way that you and I love one another is you try to be family together, if that's what puts the gospel on display to the watching world probably more than anything else, that of course the enemy of God's people would want to disrupt that. And so that part of you that constantly refuses to forgive, that part of you that's like, why do I keep questioning every motive and action of the people in my group? That part of you that you're out to lunch with some friends, and it's like, why do we always find ourselves talking about the other friends who aren't here in a way that is not uplifting to them? That is the scheme of your enemy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's the blinder. He blinds the minds of unbelievers such that they will not worship or turn to God. So that friend or neighbor you've been sharing the gospel with for years, and they keep saying, that all makes perfect sense, and yet they won't surrender to Jesus. It's the scheme of your enemy. Revelation chapter 12, he lies about our standing in Christ. John calls him the great accuser of our brothers, the one who would seek to stand over those of us who were declared righteous and holy and clean and forgiven because of Jesus and say, mm-mm, mm-mm, still not good enough. So that part of you that believes I've trusted in Jesus and yet there's still more I have to do to earn more of God's favor and approval, that's a scheme of the enemy. And you thought you were just going about your life on a Tuesday. Like, see this with me, right? Like, we think I'm just waking up, making my coffee, going to work, going to school, going to the gym, going to the grocery store. You're just going about my life. And that's exactly what the enemy of God and his people wants you to think. He wants you to be fooled. He wants you to stay unaware. He prowls around slowly, sneakily waiting to devour, looking for cracks in the opening, looking for weak spots he can exploit in our lives, which leads to question three. How are we vulnerable to his attacks? So if that's what the devil does, if that's how he gets after us through lies and deception and accusation, how do we live vulnerable to his attacks? The scriptures have a lot to say about this. Let me just give you two and kind of show you a theme. The first is Ephesians chapter 4. We, is everybody good? This is a lot, right? You're good? Okay, cool. I always ask that at our church every Sunday, and no one has said no yet. I don't know if they're afraid to. I don't know what I would do if they did. Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Here's the theme that I want you to see. How are we vulnerable to the prowling, seeking attacks of our enemy? The little undealt with issues of our lives. The little things we will not deal with. A little bit of undealt with anger, a little bit of undealt with bitterness, a little bit of withheld forgiveness, a little bit of unconfessed sin, that sort of left alone and shoved aside weakness where, yeah, but I'm good in these areas, I just kind of don't want to think about that one. It's that little foothold, Ephesians says, that little opportunity for the devil who prowls around seeking to devour and destroy. Let me try to push this a little more into your life, maybe for you. That little vulnerability, that little weakness, that little foothold is very simply frustration with your stage of life. Let's just be honest. Life, for most of us over the age of 20, is not what we wish it was. Right? Like, can we be honest for a second? You feel like your job is too hard? Your marriage is too difficult? Your parenting is too monotonous? 
Your pay is too low. Your house is too plain. Your city is too small. It is. Your body is too... (laughs) Your body is too big or too small. Your vacations are too boring or too non-existent. And every day you wake up, you find it just a little bit easier for your mind to drift towards rehearsing your frustration or your disappointment or your anger or your jealousy or your envy because you had a wish dream that you're refusing to let die of what you wish life could be. Instead, you're faced with the reality of what it actually is, which is, for the record, most of the time more beautiful than what you would have planned for yourself. And it's a small thing that robs you of joy now, robs you of gratitude now, robs you of being able to love the real people around you in your real life now, but even worse, it's a point of entry that could lead you towards much darker, dangerous things for your life and for your soul. Or maybe for you, it's unresolved grief. It's that suffering you've not put the work into to lament, to bring to God and to your community. And you think, it's not a big deal. I know that I'm kind of stuffing it and dismissing it. I'm, I'm just trying to be, you know, godly and hopeful when really you just don't want to face the pain of the reality. And that undealt with grief is actually being formed into a foothold of the devil that he eventually wants to put his foot on and climb over. And one day, according to the scriptures, you might find yourself totally overrun like a city besieged where right now you would not even recognize future you because of how despondent and cynical and bitter and hard-hearted you have become. But it's just a little bit of grief, right? It's just a little bit of frustration, right? I've been doing a lot of thinking and reading lately about stage theory, which is uh, just how we make progress with Christ in the various stages of our lives. Um, How do we follow Jesus in the teenage years and the adult years and even beyond? And I'm well aware that it's way too early for me to have a midlife crisis. I'm bald, but I'm not that old. But I just have noticed both for myself and for the community that I lead, and I think this is pretty true of City Church as well, not completely true, but for the majority of us, we are in um, what Ronald Rollheiser calls in his book Sacred Fire, which is a fantastic book, he calls it the long middle years. Like ages like late 20s to early 60s. Like these years that just kind of feel like, right, the years are short, but the days are very, very, very long. And so in an effort to be a good follower of Jesus and a good pastor and a good human, I've just been trying to wrap my mind around how do I follow Jesus and how do I lead my people to follow Jesus in uh, what's best described as just middle-aged monotony, where it's like, am I doing the same thing every day? And it's like, yeah, you are. How do I follow Jesus in that? And what are the inherent spiritual dangers that come up in this time? And I I love this from from C.S. Lewis. I find it so frightening and yet so helpful. He writes in his uh, book, Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional account of an older demon training a younger demon. And this is what he says. This is what the older demon writes to the younger demon and how to attack Christians. This is what he says. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. It is so hard for these creatures, that's you and I humans, to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives, and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All of this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. So he says the constant adversity that life just feels hard, 
the gradual decay of what we were desiring and hoping for as youth, the quiet despair of the same temptation and the same temptation and the same temptation, the boringness of our lives and the little bit of resentment we can't put our voice to. All of this is opportunities for wearing out our souls. But then he goes to the other side. What if I don't feel any of that? What if my life is awesome? If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is, quote, finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing an agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being at, really at home in earth, which is just what we want. So maybe you're in the long middle years. And maybe you feel like it is just the same thing after the same thing after the same thing. And you feel the frustrations and the desires of youth fading away. And you're like, am I ever going to beat this same temptation? Or is this my life story for the next 40 years? Or maybe you feel none of that. And everything is awesome. And you love your job. And you're thriving. And your family's doing great. And your friendships are great. And you feel great. Either way, both can be used by our enemy. So... Question four, how do we resist him? If that's the reality, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, then how do we do what Peter calls the church to do in verse nine? Resist him, firm in your faith. This is, after all, not a series on the devil or even a series really on the enemies. It's a series on formation. And I'm convinced in the words of James K.A. Smith, you cannot simply think your way to Christlikeness. There is no formation without repetition. There is no formation without practice and community. So teaching is good, helpful information is good, but how do we practically live out an active, steadfast resistance to the lying schemes of the devil? Peter tells us a few things in this passage. First, he says, be humble. Be humble. It says this in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Track with me on this. If the devil is a liar, which he is, then maybe, just maybe, you and I, caught up in the world we inhabit, with the flesh still very much a part of our reality, may occasionally, hypothetically, actually begin to believe his lies. Like maybe, just maybe, you might be more holy than I am, that's okay. Maybe we aren't thinking 100% clearly about every circumstance we encounter, every situation we find ourselves in, every feeling or thought that rises to the surface of our souls, and we, friends, myself included, trust ourselves way too much. We trust our intuition and our sense of the world way too much. So here's what it means that the first step in fighting the enemy is to humble ourselves. It means stop trusting yourself so much. Have the humility to be able to say, maybe what I think or what I feel or what I'm so doggedly convinced of right now is actually wrong. Maybe I'm not seeing the situation clearly. Maybe I'm not as pure motived as I think I am in this moment in time. This especially comes true in the context of community. You all do community very similar to how we do it in Charlotte, and here's how it goes down. Something, someone shares something at group. Hey, I'm thinking about this. I'm going to step into this. Here's how I've been living. And the whole life group is like, whoa, 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 time out. That, that's off. Like, here's the scriptures. Boom, boom, boom. Not, not okay, right? And our response, and we think it. We don't say it because we're way too nice, but we think it. Maybe just me. What a bunch of idiots, Right? Hey, this is what I'm thinking. And the entire group's like, hey, based on the scriptures, we think this is off. And here's what we start to think. Oh, well, well, that's not really what the text means. 
Like, I read a blog on it that disagrees with you. And, like, I've seen the TikTok theologian that disagrees with you. And maybe, just maybe, I haven't fully explained my circumstances enough. That's why you're disagreeing. If I just would explain a little bit more about the hardship I'm living through, you would understand the behavior that I want to do. As if 19 other people that have the Holy Spirit inside of them, not to mention thousands, if not millions of Christians throughout history are getting it wrong, and you have the aha revelation from God himself. Just me? Instead of thinking in humility, maybe I am believing some lies here. Maybe I'm not correct. Maybe I shouldn't have trusted myself so much. Maybe I've believed the lies of the deceiver. Let me instead trust these God-given people he has placed around me who have the Holy Spirit inside of them and are after me looking more like Jesus and living a flourishing life with him. And listen to me, this becomes more and more dangerous the longer you follow Jesus. I have a degree in theology. I'm like nine months away from getting a doctorate in it. This is a dangerous thing for me. Because I'm convinced, well, surely I know the Bible better than everybody else in my group. I'm a pastor. Surely they just don't understand. Surely I see this situation clearly. Surely they don't know what they're talking about. Or we do this via life stage. Oh, man, we do this via life stage. Uh, This isn't in the notes. My bad. Um, We're like, oh, yeah, but you can't speak into that because you don't have kids. So you don't really understand. And this is what I've decided. And once you have kids, you'll, you'll understand why I want to do this. You'll understand why I'm responding that way. Or, or flip, well, you, you've been married for 10 years. You don't understand my singleness. You can't speak into this. Or, well, you haven't lived the same trauma or suffering that I have. You can't, you can't tell me what to do. They're lies. The great disunifier of the church would love for you to believe the worst in the people you're in community with. They would love for you to believe, not that they're trying their best to love you at great risk to themselves in your relationship. They would love for you to believe you're out to get them and withhold from them and keep from them. He would love for you to believe that both about God and them. And so the first step is just to be humble, which is incredibly difficult. So we need the Holy Spirit. Second thing he calls us to do is to be sober-minded and to be watchful. Be free Peter says, from intoxicating influences. And he doesn't mean here too much alcohol or certain types of drugs or substances or whatnot. He means be free from handing over the control of your mind to something or someone else. If the work of the devil is lies, the battle with the the devil is more often than not in our minds. And so we must watch with all diligence what we let into our minds. Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan famously said, we become what we behold. Kent talked about this a lot in week two. This was so much of the heart behind the media fast that I am confident you're doing. These things work together. You caught it. There you go. Good job. These things work together, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires normalized in a sinful society. So to be sober-minded and watchful means we look for what are the ways I'm spending my time beholding what is actually feeding me lies. What is feeding me untrue narratives about the world? Or let me ask it a little bit closer to home. What is the media you are consuming doing to you? We talked about even this weekend as a community, what is the very act of consuming the media doing to you? How is it forming you? How is it shaping you? What do you think two hours a day of TikTok fitness influencers does to the way you view yourself and others? What do you think Netflix show after Netflix show that glamorizes the lifestyles of the rich and famous does to the way you think about money? 
How are you needing to guard your mind? I had a whole rant in here about TikTok, but City Church has one now, so we're going to skip it. And I'm just going to go here. Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Be watchful about what you allow to come into your mind. Be watchful about what you are starting to believe. Be watchful about what you allow to remain in your mind. Have categories for the things you consume being greater than just sinful and not sinful. Be aware of what C.S. Lewis calls the reality that the universe at all times is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. What are you letting live in your mind? And that leads us to number three. Last one, be diligent to replace lies with truth. The enemy works in lies, but our God not only works in truth, Jesus is the truth. So to compete against deceptive ideas, we need as much input of truthful ideas as possible. And how do we do that? What do the scriptures say? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so we starve out these other inputs. We're committed to being sober-minded and watchful about what we let in, and we feast on and live in the scriptures. We let God's word live in our hearts. I think about the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He's in the wilderness. He's being tempted by the devil. And each time, his response against the lies and deceit of the devil is with the word of God. Make these stones become bread. No, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Throw yourself off the temple. The angels will save you. Uh Uh-uh, it's written. Do not put God to the test. Worship me, I'll give you the world. Mm -mm, It's written, worship God and serve him only. Lies and deceit replaced with truth from God's word. And listen, this is why it's so important you live in this text. Do you know that scripture reading, being a regular part of your life, is not an end, it's a means. We get into this word not to check something off of our Christian to-do list or to feel good about ourselves or to feel like, I just had an awesome, quiet time. Let's go after the day. The goal of living in the text is that the text would begin to live in us. That God would begin to replace the lies we've believed with truth. We have this really interesting dynamic that's happening in our family right now. We've got an almost four-year-old and an almost two-year-old. Harper's almost four and Nora's almost two. And there's this dynamic that's been happening where now that Nora understands words, Harper uses her to try to get what she actually wants. And so what happens is we'll be hanging out in the kitchen and they'll be in the playroom and Harper decides, I want a cookie. And so what she does is she turns to Nora and she's like, Nora, do you want a cookie? And now Nora, a little two-year-old wonderful sweet Nora's got cookies in her brain. And so she runs into the kitchen and she's like, snack, 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 snack. And we're like, who put these into your brain? These lies, right? Or they're sitting there on the couch, and she's like, Nora, do you want to watch TV? And I'm like, I didn't mention TV. TV is not an option right now. And Nora's like, TV, TV, bluey, bluey, just over and over again. And so here's what we're learning. Here's what we have to do as good, responsible parents. Our voices need to be louder and more frequent than Harper's. Now, the illustration breaks down. My child is not the devil. (laughs) But it's the same reality. If all Nora is hearing is bad idea from Harper, bad idea from Harper, bad idea from Harper for four hours a day, five hours a day, six hours a day, and then she gets two minutes with us, what story do you think she's going to believe? What narrative do you think she's going to live into? What reality about the world do you think she is going to embody? I love this writer, Winifred Gallagher, calls this the skillful management of attention. You become what you behold. What are you beholding? We must let, in the words of Colossians 3, the word of God dwell in us richly. 
That's what you're going to do this week in your practice. That this good idea from the scriptures is going to become an actual reality in your life where you're going to take your practice guide and you're going to make two charts and on one side you're going to list out the lies you are, you are believing. Things like I'm alone or my sin puts me beyond the reach of God's love or if something feels right to me, it probably is right. Those are lies. And you're going to replace them not with good ideas but with scripture. But the truth of God's word. Here's what the scriptures actually say. And if you begin to do this as a set-aside practice, I'm going to actually sit down to do it, then more and more you'll notice this practice will become a habit. And more and more you'll notice that as ideas pop into your mind about the world in your life, you'll start going, okay, is this true? Is this true? What do the scriptures say? Now, let me end our time together with some encouragement just to kind of close up the whole series together. Your enemies are real. The world, the flesh, and the devil are out to get you. There is a very real threat for your soul from deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires normalized in a sinful society, and we should labor and work and strive to resist them and fight against them and fight against all the power of deformation so that we may be transformed into the image of Christ. But here's the good news for you, City Church. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Look back with me one more time. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your very real, very threatening adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's so encouraging to me that in Charlotte, the same devil's attacking us too. But here's the good news, church. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why? Because to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the reality we are heading to. So here's what this means for our lives. I have a really bad awful habit that my friends make fun of me for, where I self-spoil movies. Inevitably, what happens when I sit down to watch a movie is there becomes some point in the movie about 20 to 25 minutes in where I just find myself full of anxiety. And I am so nervous, and I'm like, my life is full of anxiety. I don't need this movie to give me more. And so I look up the ending, which, uh, no shame in the gospel, um, which, fun fact, Wikipedia has every movie plot you could ever want. And so what happens is, 25 minutes in, I'm like over there hiding it from my wife who's going to make fun of me, just looking up the ending, and then I'm like, sweet, I know what happens now. And so as we watch the rest of the movie, here's the difference between how Lindsay, my wife, watches it and how I watch it. Something happens. Who's that character? What's going to happen here? Did they just die? And then she looks at me, and she's like, you're not nervous at all. Do you know the ending? Did you look, at, did you look up the ending? And I'm like, of course I looked up the ending. Do you know how I watch movies when they get a little bit tense? They get a little bit scary. They get a little bit frightening. Kick my feet up. Have a little bit of popcorn. I lay my head back. And there might be an occasional moment where it gets a little bit frightening, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh but, I, but I know what's coming. Church, that's 1 Peter 5. Is this a little bit threatening? Sure it is. Live with a very real reality that the devil is after you. Yes. 
Is it a little bit threatening that there's this power within me, the flesh that wants to, to consume me and devour me, that I'm trying to put to death what is already put to death in Christ? Yes. Is the world continually conforming these messed up realities to convince me they're real and true when they're actually not? Yes. And yet the greater reality than all that is you will suffer for a little while. And then after that, the God of all grace will himself restore you because it's his dominion forever and ever. And that's what we're about to do as you move to the communion tables. Oftentimes we think of communion as a, a chance to look back, and it very much is. Right? We take of the cup and we take of the bread, and we remember what Christ has done for us, his body and blood on the cross. But church, it's also very much a chance to look forward. Jesus, when he's establishing communion at the Last Supper, he tells his disciples, I will not eat again of the vine until I eat it with you again in paradise. And that's the good news we look forward to. We take of this meal, you take of this meal every Sunday, not just as a chance to remember what Christ has done, but as a hopeful promise of what he will do. And that though you have very real enemies, Christ has the dominion now and forever. He rules and reigns. He is not nervous. He is not afraid of the enemy. And so you do not have to be either. Perfect love casts out fear. And so we live in confident trust. And so all who are in Christ, you can come to the tables after we pray and come and feast and eat, remembering that Christ has the dominion forever and ever. Resist the enemies, but do not fear the enemies. For God is in charge. Let's pray together.